Hi, I'm Bex Dillon and welcome to this podcast, Conversations on Faith and Equality. And since we've hit um, COVID-19 and lockdown, I wasn't sure how we were going to be able to continue this podcast until someone pointed out to me, why don't you just do it on Zoom like lots of other people are doing things. So we did, we got on Zoom with Sally Whitney, who's actually someone I've been wanting to interview for a really long time. And this made it much easier than trying to, we hadn't been able to get all together, so now we were able to do it over Zoom. And Sally is has been a friend of mine for the last four years, met her in Brighton, we're both helping at Safe Haven, which is sort of women's project um, that's part of our church in Brighton. And Sally is probably one of the most inspiring people that I know. I don't want to say anything now about her story because you'll hear it in a minute. But she, she's amazing. And I think you can't leave spending time with her being impacted by how she lives her life with all that she's gone through. I um, just want to say, as it was done over the internet, there are a few moments where it sort of drops out. But hopefully you can still get the gist of what's been saying. Don't miss anything. Hope you enjoy it. so much Sally so like we've been trying to make this happen for so long and wouldn't have thought that actually the fact that it's not possible to meet made it possible for us to actually have the podcast for months we've been saying how can we all get together and it hasn't happened and now we've managed to do it on zoom so our first you are our first person ever that we've done a podcast with not face to face all spread out across the UK where are you thank Sally? you so much for doing it whereabouts are you I'm now North Bedfordshire at the moment and you're with your parents? With my parents. So my care team, unfortunately, half of them went off sick, so I didn't have enough people to look after me. So we've, yeah, decamped and recamped up here. But, uh, yeah, it's going quite well. <laughs> as well as it can go when you move back in with your parents as an adult. Because <laughs> the schools are closed, Ed's not working either then. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, he was, no, he was working before... The Easter holidays, he was doing online work, so he okay. was working from here as well. Um, yeah, so. So Ed, your husband, just in case anyone doesn't wondering who yes. Ed is. Ed is my husband, and then Ethan is my assistant's dog, and Piccolo is my cat. But most of the time, people ask me about Ethan more than they do ask me about Ed. So, just to be clear, Ed is the, is the human being, and Ethan is the dog, but both of them are wonderful. <laughs> um, we, I think we met at a safe haven about probably four years ago. Think that was it that long I think ago? You, you I think you were pregnant with freedom. I would have been, yeah. So it must have been about four years ago. She's three and a half. Yeah. So that's when we um, first met, and then I've always like, really enjoyed talking to you about lots of different things. And then only a year ago started this podcast, and then even more kind of joy getting your opinion and insight on these things to do with equality and inequality within faith groups in society but then also particularly talking about disability and your experience so it's so great to have you and I've always like every time we've had a conversation I thought oh I wish that that would have been recorded and I could have used that so everything oh, no. you say is always really interesting <laughs> but oh, now it is actually recorded 
<laughs> and Sally, I'm so thrilled to meet you, and I, I love just to hear your your story. You know, right, from, right, go back right to the beginning, your childhood, because you had a, like an idyllic childhood. I did so very much. So in this house, actually, um, and uh, yeah, so I grew up in Bedfordshire, um, in the countryside, with kind of every privilege that I could imagine. Um, uh, excellent parents, went to fabulous schools, loved life, loved academic work, excelled in academic work, but did absolutely every extracurricular activity that I could because I was just, just so buzzing with life and probably spent too much energy doing, trying to do everything. Um, horse riding. I've seen you on a, a picture of you on a horse. <laughs> That's when I went to Cuba. No, I wasn't a um, horse rider. I was a keen skier and okay. sailor. Um, played in lots of the teams at school and um, like the sports teams, the netball team. I did all. I did all the musical kind of things. I did everything. Um, and yeah, so my aspiration was to become a doctor, and I had the grades for it, and I had all of the kind of you have to have a lot of extra things to go into medical school and I went to all of my interviews and I actually got uh, about three offers to different medical schools um, and at that time when I was when you have to decide about what you're going to want to do I was trying to decide between if was I going to do medicine or was I going to do French and Latin at Oxford and I thought oh which way can I serve the world best? And so my aims were to serve the world and to serve God. And I thought French and Latin, I could potentially be some kind of aid worker and use the French, but medicine's probably a bit more of an obvious route. So I thought I would do that. Um, and yeah, I chose my place at Edinburgh. And then in the February half term, before I was due to take my A-levels, um, I got sick. And just describe what, what is the condition that you got? Because it's two conditions, isn't it? <laughs> it's a plethora of conditions. Okay. <laughs> so the two main conditions that I have are, one is an autoimmune disease. So that's where um, your immune system is a bit overzealous and attacks um, your own tissues. And that's called lupus, the one that I have. Um, but with that lupus, I have a lot of other autoimmune conditions. So lots of the different tissues in my body, including kind of the tissues of my organs or my blood vessels and my bones are being attacked by my immune system. Um, and then I have another um, rare disease called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disease where the connective tissue called collagen, which is a protein, is mutated. And you find that protein in all of the different tissues of the body. Um, and really kind of briefly, it's where the mutation leads to this protein being extra stretchy. Um, and it means that all of the tissues have this kind of laxness, which means that they can't perform the duties that they need to do. So that's in all of the organs of my body. So for example, my blood vessels are super stretchy and will stretch a bit like a pair of tights, but then don't have the ability to kind of recompress and contract and push the blood back up to my heart in the same way that affects my blood and my bowel, um, mm. the cerebral spinal fluid in my head. But it also leads um, to dislocations in the joints because the muscles aren't held 
um, properly, the joints aren't held properly in place by the muscles. So I've got extreme hypermobility. And then just to add to that fun, I also suffer from non-epileptic seizures. And are all those things connected or is it just coincidence that you've got them all the time? Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that's been the question for a while. <laughs> um, I think that maybe in the future we'll find that there is a link. Um, but at the moment, lupus is considered fairly rare in a white person and um, it, it's more likely to be in um, black people or people from Asia. Um, and Ehlers-Danlos is also a fairly rare disease. Um, so theoretically, they're separate. But a lot of the comorbidities that I have with them, um, you find with both of them, so they overlap. Um, I just say that my parents passed me some pretty bad combination of genes. Until you were like 18 or something. Yeah, so it started with um with a virus actually. So yeah, so I was only 17 and I just came down in that February half term with a virus, and it was actually viral thyroiditis so I, I have a thyroid disease as well and I just had this massive great big lump in my um, throat and um, as I said I was a really keen skier but kind of like for that week of half term I was in bed I was exhausted I was in a lot of pain I just couldn't get myself out of bed but I was desperate to go skiing with my family um, and about four days after they'd flown out I flew out separately to go skiing with them and it was the last time that I did anything at all athletic um, because I just wasn't able to get out of bed. I dragged myself onto the slopes and I couldn't get down. I was just so unwell. And from that point, everything started to get a lot worse. Um, so I think it was probably a virus which kind of kick-started um, the illnesses. They were always going to be there. They were always there. They were always going to kind of eventually come to pass. But I think that was what kind of triggered things. Um, and you spent eight months in hospital or something like that? Yeah. So I've been <laughs> been in and out of hospital since 2005. I spent um, just under eight months in hospital in 2007 where I was really, really unwell um, and unable to move, fed by a feeding tube, could only move my right hand um, and was having a lot of seizures and my weight plummeted because I wasn't able to eat. Um, and that was a really horrendous situation because at that time I was um had been misdiagnosed with the diagnosis of ME um uh -huh. which was uh difficult in itself because obviously ME is quite an unknown disorder and there's not a lot of treatment out there but I actually didn't have ME so the things which they were doing weren't particularly helpful mm. um and then when I didn't respond to the treatment in the way that they wanted me to um, there was quite a punitive response from the doctors and oh. from the hospital. So that mm. wasn't good. That, that was a horrendous time. Um, and then when I got out of that hospital, um, I actually then got some of the diagnoses that um, I actually are correct and that I have now. Um, and then I spent a lot of time kind of in and out of hospital but I went into intensive care in 2013 um, and spent several months in intensive care before being moved up to the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery because I was having seizures kind of four or five times a day and they were leading to respiratory arrests. So 
I was in intensive care, um, yeah. ventilated on a breathing tube, much like the people oh, now. COVID nineteen, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So I know, I know what it's like to survive on a ventilator and to be, yeah. yeah. But you have survived, and but now you're in a wheelchair. Um, yeah, since 2013, I um, haven't been able to stand and walk um, because I tend to pass out or have a seizure if I do that. And so I've been, yep, in a power wheelchair since then, and I have um, a carer with me 24-7. And so, you have a carer, but you also yeah. have a dog, Ethan. Exactly. So I have the double whammy. I have a human carer um, because there are certain things that they have to do. Like they have to give me my medication and make me meals. <laughs> but Ethan can do a lot of things too. So he's an assistance dog. Um, and I got him from the charity Canine Partners and he can do a heck of a lot of things. He's um, amazing, isn't he? I mean, he he's goes, amazing. <laughs> he opens, opens doors, gets you clothes. Absolutely. Um, can get to the oh, fridge and get things out of the fridge. He gets things out of the fridge. He gets the most important things are that he can get help in an emergency. So previously, not only did I have to have a carer with me 24-7, they physically had to be in the room. So I wouldn't be able to have a shower on my own because I might pass out or have a seizure and no one would know. So I was always having to be with physically with someone. And now Ethan comes with me to the bathroom and I shower and he passes me whatever I drop. He passes me my towels. But most importantly, if I start to have a seizure, um, Ethan will burst out of the bathroom. He will search the house. And he will find a human being and he will nudge them until they say, what is it, Ethan? What is it? And then they have to follow him back. Um, and they mm. find me and they can help me from there. Amazing. So you have, but you also have a husband. As well I also as I. have a husband. <laughs> yeah, I have a collection of loving people. <laughs> How did that happen? Say the question again. How did you meet Ed? So I met Ed on a Christian dating website, wow. um, which was, yeah, it's quite difficult um, as a disabled person who is very isolated. So if you imagine the life that you guys are living right now um, in COVID-19 where you don't leave your house. Well, I wasn't even leaving my house at all. I couldn't leave, um, I couldn't leave the flat at all. So mm. I didn't have interaction with the outside world. I wasn't really able to meet anyone in a kind of organic, natural, physical way. I no. couldn't just bump into somebody. I couldn't go to a bar or a pub or join a team or go to church. So I had friends who I had made before I had become bedbound and housebound, but I wasn't able to, they would have to come and see me. Mm. And so to meet a new person was virtually impossible. I couldn't do that in a physical manner. So I had to, when I, when I felt like I wanted to be in a relationship, and I'll tell you why I decided that that was, it was time, was because... I realized that as much as my parents have been absolutely wonderful to me and have supported me through my illnesses, um, and as wonderful and kind of heroic as Ethan is, um, waking up in recess in A&E or having been extubated, so coming off the ventilator and having a tube um, taken out of my mouth, which was breathing for me, and waking up to their faces 
was a very different experience because I knew that my parents had birthed me and the carers that I had were there. They were being paid to look after me. And Ethan is an amazing dog who would do anything for me, but he was there because he, he loves me as a human to dog. And I suddenly realized that, you know what, it would be wonderful to have someone who was here through no sense of obligation, but because they truly love me. And, mm. and I thought, now it's time to find somebody. So Ed, I mean, Ed is, now just describe what Ed, Ed does and, and a little bit about him. So Ed is a teacher. He, um, bless him, he moved from the Chichester region to Brighton uh, for me. So up until we got married, he was com commuting from Chichester to Brighton uh, most weekends. So it was very, um, he was very dedicated <laughs> to come and see me every weekend. Um, and yeah, bless Archie, um, married us in August 2017. Archie, Archie Coates, St. Peter's Brighton. Yeah, Vicar St. Peter's. Yeah. And so your faith is obviously a very important part of this. Just say a little bit about your faith. Absolutely. So um, for Ed and I, our connection was our faith, but also I think our connection was the fact that we were both willing to be very vulnerable about what had happened in our lives and how we had relied on God and how God had got us through the different, he, we had had very different stories. Um, but for me, my attraction to Ed was that he, one, first of all, wasn't hugely put off and run a mile by the fact that I had 24 hour care. I had an assistance dog. I was living in a flat with carers and I had, could have seizures at any point. Um, so that was, you know, that was, that was a great start. <laughs> but the second thing was that he was, he was willing to share his story about kind of his reliance on God with me. And he was really, really keen to hear mine. And for someone to be that open about their struggles, for me, was a really appealing thing. And I think it's something that people tend to shy away from. And um, usually people put on a brave face or especially as Christians have some kind of an idea that they need to be able to cope with things and um, that, you know, if you're a Christian, God's got it, you can't show weakness. And instead there was this man telling me about things that happened that hadn't been so good, but where he had relied on God and God got him through. And even if God hadn't have got him through, the fact that he was able to open up about that, um, I found incredibly attractive. Hmm. You've been through so much, Sally. I don't think I know anyone really who's been through so much and is still like so full of love and joy. Yeah, <laughs> but I also think like, how, how does that, has that affected your faith? Has it how have you worked that out? Yeah, it, it's been hard. Um, <laughs> it's been hard. So I think that, well, I'm 100% I'm certain that without my faith, I wouldn't still be here. Um, without God, I wouldn't still be here. There have been, there's just been so many times that I should have died and I haven't. So I don't take any of the credit for that. That, that has been God. I, I've, you know, I've been in intensive care just into 10 times. I've had kind of five spiritual arrests. Wow. I, I really shouldn't be here, but I am. And I love life mm -hmm. and he is good to me. And that is not to say in any way there still isn't suffering every day, no. but mm. he is good to me. And he shows me that maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but in the future, he will continue to be good to me and new things will happen. But so interestingly, I think the times that I felt the absolutely closest to God have been the times when I've been the illest. So when I was in that hospital in the ME unit, um, and I was, yeah, completely immobile, just able to move my right hand um, and most vulnerable. I was 19 years old, being fed by a tube, 
um, I was most vulnerable and actually I was most open to being abused and, and that happened. Um, it was God um, who got me through. It was actually, and this is what's amazing about the NHS, it was some of the staff, um, like the hostesses who come and bring you tea and coffee or um, the lay people, the lay pastors who would come in, um, there was a nun who came in, they, they, they would come in and they would pray for me. And, and I couldn't really speak, um, but I would live for those moments. And it was those times that I knew that God was there. And yeah, what, there was this particular lady who would bring me my water every day. Um, and she was just so full of life and love and she would just pray over me and it was wonderful. And then another time when I was in intensive care, um, and, but I was awake and the um, Oceans album by Hillsong had come out mm. and I was in isolation. I had contracted a infectious disease in the hospital. So I was in this side ward and um, all on my own. And I would just play the Oceans album over and over and over again. And I just felt so close to God. And I think it's because I was desperate. I didn't have anything else. Um, and, that, and in some ways, I feel, I feel sad for saying that. I feel guilty that it, that kind of my closeness to God has come through desperation and not through the, the joyful times. I wish, I wish that I was able to have that reliance on him when things were all running well. Because it's very easy when things are going well to forget about the fact that we're reliant on God and to be more reliant on ourselves or our family or our job or our or money. But actually, you know, actually, it's in really, really hard times that that's the only person that we have left is him. Um, and that's when I have been closest and I've suddenly understood this is what faith is. This is who he is and this is what he does for me. And, yeah, he truly has been my saviour. Hmm. And, I mean, your day-to-day -day life still is of having carers and you know it's potentially like not being well on a regular basis so you've kind of experienced life like that and how have you seen then the sort of outside world treating you have you felt like it treats you the same have you felt like there's you've seen inequality how is that uh, what's your sort of view of that it's interesting because um up until 2013 um i had had periods where i was completely and utterly bed bound and isolated. Um, mm. Then I'd had periods where I actually had moved down to Brighton and was doing a bit better, so wasn't in a wheelchair and my illnesses were invisible. And now everything is incredibly visible. I have a PA with me at all times, I'm in a wheelchair, I have an assistance dog. And the responses to those different situations have been fascinating and it's happening. <laughs> so as a young woman, I think woman is probably, or a young girl is, is one of the factors um, at home um, and in the outside world with illnesses that no one really understood I felt incredibly isolated and especially back in the early 2000s we didn't have the technologies that we have these days I didn't have the uh, ability to connect with people I was I was forgotten um, mm -hmm. and now I do quite a lot of research and um, uh, into disability um, and disability studies but that's one of the biggest things that we find is that young people with disabilities say that they feel like they are invisible that they don't have um, a place in society that society the rest of society feel unable to talk to them and that they aren't able to voice their own opinions with others so I think to begin with I felt forgotten mm -hmm. um, and then when I was um, doing a bit better and was walking around and so theoretically didn't look unwell um, I was a healthy weight and um, I was kind of suffering in silence it was really difficult 
um, because I wasn't able to, I didn't feel comfortable to tell people about my vulnerabilities and the things which were going on for me. And actually I was just kind of cut out of anything that was physical. Um, I remember kind of going to student things and all the kind of kind of fun team building things were physical, like let's build a pyramid out of bodies and I would just have to sit to the side and that was really hard. Mm. And then since being um, in a wheelchair and being a lot more unwell, um, it's taken a while to accept my identity as a disabled person. Um, for a very, very long time, I fought hard to get over these conditions and to get better. Um, and I, I dismissed them. I was like, I, I'm Sally Whitney. I can get through this. I've done mm. this before. I, and I, I hadn't given in to the fact that this was, this was what was going to happen in my life. And actually, I needed to rely on God and not rely on my own strength because I wasn't going to be able to do it in my own strength. And when I realized that, and when I also realized that being a disabled person doesn't have to be a negative, I can be a proud disabled person. There are many things that I can do. There are many things that I can give to others that I might not be able to give if I wasn't in the position I am in. That's when I started to embrace my identity as a disabled person. But yeah, I've experienced a lot of difficulties. Um, one of those is, as I've alluded to, it, there, there's a statistic out there that there's um, so about one fifth of the population in Britain have a disability of one kind or not. And um, a fifth of all, no, two thirds of all 18 to 34 year olds in society have said that not only do they feel awkward talking to disabled people, they actually go out of their way to avoid um, a single person because of the awkwardness. So there's a real lack of um, ability to relate um, to disabled people. We are ostracized, we are isolated. Um, and it's really sad because um, just because somebody is disabled doesn't mean that they don't have something to contribute, doesn't mean that they um, aren't valuable. And these are things that I had to learn for myself. I had been fed the rhetoric of, if you're ill, if you don't have an education, which I didn't, I had tried university many, many times and always ended up in hospital. I felt worthless. I felt like I was a burden. I had no value. And actually, I had to learn through God. He valued me. I've been made in God's image. Is God's image different because I'm disabled? Like, what? well, this person isn't disabled, but I am. My body doesn't work, but theirs does. But we're both made in God's image. What does that mean? And to me, that meant that he must love me and, and value me as much as he does the next person. Mm. And so... That was, a <laughs> that was a real hard one, was to start to accept some of the truths that I read in the Bible, some of the things that I read about how God loved me, and to kind of start marrying those up with my own um, opinions of myself. I really didn't think that I had anything to give, that I had any value. I genuinely thought I was a burden. And so... It was kind of, yeah, this, this trickle of reading what God had to say and starting to believe him about some of these things that made me realize, you know what, maybe maybe you have got something that you can give back. Hmm. There was and, something I could do. And Sally, how do you think the church could be better? 
in your situation? What, what, could the, what could we have done better? What can we do better for people in your situation? So <laughs> this, is, this is hard um, to answer because I, I don't want to be overly critical. <laughs> but I'm just going to no, go Be honest. It. Be honest. Okay. We, want, you know, what we, want, we need to learn. Yeah, yeah, we do, and and society needs to learn, and um, mm. and obviously churches is, is a representation of society, and so um, I think there are a lot of things that we could do. We need to have an empowering approach to disability, which means that um, disabled people get to have a say in how disabled people can be brought into the church and accepted and welcomed. Um, it can't just be a lovely idea or even a tokenistic idea that non-disabled people have come up or a tick box. Okay, we've put in an accessible loo. That's our, that's our way of welcoming disabled people. We need to have more access for disabled people to get into the churches. And that's from the beginning. That isn't just kind of tacking something on later in an awkward kind of like, oh, will this do kind of a manner because we've seen a wheelchair user come into the building. If we want our church to be truly inclusive, then we need to start thinking about how do we make this inclusive for all people from the very beginning? So if we're building a church building or if we're starting a group or a team or a course, then we need to think about not only physical access, so perhaps ramps, perhaps a hearing loop, but also ways to make church accessible in terms of um, are people able to uh, read the screens when we're worshipping? Is is the um, text big enough? Um, are we making sure that everybody feels reached in the community? Or are there people at home who aren't well enough to come into church? And how can we reach out to them? Mm. Uh, and that needs to be done from the beginning with intention as opposed to as an afterthought. And also we need to see disabled people represented. So um, in our church, we, we don't have many people who are visibly, visibly disabled. We have um, a lot of people who look very healthy and that's not to say that they are because there are a lot of invisible disabilities. But I feel like we need to represent disability in all of the fun ways that we use social media, um, that we publicize um, things about the church, about the course. We need to have images of disabled bodies because we're part of society. One fifth of people in the UK have some form of disability or another. That should be true of the church too. And, and people aren't gonna feel comfortable about coming to church if they don't see people like them being there too and there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation isn't there if um do we kind of put things in uh into place for for example somebody with learning disabilities if we don't have anyone with learning disabilities in our church well maybe people would say no but if a new person comes into church and is just vaguely exploring they don't see that there's any kind of um, accommodation for them then are they going to come back to church? Probably not. So we need to be intentional about that too. But also we need to think about ministry. And, and that's interesting because I think for a long time, people, disabled people have been ministered to. 
um, this person is broken in some way or this person needs healing, this person needs prayer. Um, and first of all, I'd like to point out that, that disabled people aren't broken. Um, and sometimes people want prayer and sometimes they don't, just like other people. Mm. And so we need to be quite careful about when we talk about um, healing and prayer, whether mm. um, somebody actually wants the healing that you might think that they need or mm. wants the prayer. For example, people have prayed for me to be able to walk again. And actually, for me, being able to walk again isn't half as important as being able to get back into the world and make a meaningful contribution. So that, that's just a side point. Mm. But um, we are able to, um, be con if we can be considered as a part of the ministry team as well, that would be wonderful. So there is a ministry for, for, um, for the dis uh, disabled people, but disabled people can also be an active part of church life. Like we can yeah. provide ministry and, and we don't just need to kind of talk about disability. So we shouldn't just be invited to discuss disability. Why can't we be included in everything? And in the same way that non-disabled people are able to discuss and teach on everything in yeah. life, we can do that too. Um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of young, young disabled people, um, and some of them have been uh, Christians, and they've said, you know, we've never ever been asked to lead a group or lead a team. We've always just been asked if we'd like prayer. And that was incredibly yeah. disheartening for them. Yeah. And it's about inclusion, and it's about ac active inclusion. You go, Bex. Well, I was just going to say, you know, having talked about the church, also thinking like now looking at society and some of the things you've talked about of like isolation and people being in their homes and un unable to access things. So everyone is experiencing yeah. that now, but obviously that's for a, for a period and mm. whether that's going to impact then how we think about, you know, now lots of people thinking, how do I care for my vulnerable neighbour? Do I take, drop them shopping? Do I do things? Should that change how we actually think about each other in society once you know lockdown is lifted and we're out of this season how as a society do we should we then be responding to each other and particularly to those that are more vulnerable and isolated I think that's an amazing point I, I would love it if this pandemic could make real positive changes so the fact that you um Mickey and I are all talking on zoom is amazing mm. because I've been using Zoom for three years to do work from home. Mm. Um, and now that we have church um, online, yes. it means that I don't miss out when yeah. like my whole fear of missing out thing has gone. I suddenly am now lying on my sofa at home in my pajamas, feeling unwell, but still getting to access church and not feeling like I'm the only person who's yeah. not there. And that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really pray that this changes the way that we do life. As you say, there are so many people in the world who aren't able, who are living lockdown every day of their lives. And if we can utilize the tools that we are all learning now and extend them to extend them to beyond lockdown and keep using them. And remember, we can include people from their homes or from their hospital beds because we've got this technology. Um, we can deliver food parcels. We can check on our neighbor because we know that there are people who, you know, right now, everyone is vulnerable, but there's always been vulnerability in our society. Yeah. And perhaps, we, perhaps we haven't realized that enough and we haven't focused on that enough. And I know that when we talk about equality, it's, 
it is interesting because there's quite a lot about intersectionality there. So how people's race, their class, their gender actually changes their experience of disability and their access to equality. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about that within the church that, you know, disabled people are twice as likely to be living in poverty. And so when we think about our churches, we need to think, well, do those people have other needs? Are they experiencing um, inequality because of some of those factors? And we need to be able to compensate for them and and remember them. When, when things, my prayer would be that when things go back, we don't go back to how it was actually. I don't want them to go back. I want to move forward. I don't want there to be COVID-19 anymore. I want to be in a, in a society where we are all included. And that bit may be via virtual methods, but it may be by visiting people. It's just remembering that there are people who can't always be present. And also that people who can't always do the same things physically, but or mentally, intellectually, but we are all as valuable to God. We are all yeah. made in his image and we, we are worth something. Yeah. Well, our services will definitely be online. Um, Amazing. Forever, whatever happens. I mean, Fantastic. We, we would never go back to not being online. Um, I, I mean, hopefully we're going back to meeting in person. Absolutely. But, but if it's only for you, Sally, we will definitely go online <laughs> onwards. I will always remember that, that, that there are people who will be able to join us who wouldn't otherwise be able to join. And so we will, we're committed to staying online. If it's just for you, we're going to stay online. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Bless you. So good, Sally. I feel like you've got yeah. such wisdom and it's so interesting to hear you talk about different things. Um, so thank you so you're much. You're very inspiring. You're really inspiring. Yeah. You're so articulate about what you're... Which yeah. I hope as many people as possible hear this. And we will def I will definitely check, want to work at doing church differently because of what you said. So thank you very, very much. Bless you. Really thank grateful. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for so having much, me. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you so thank good. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast, Conversations on Faith and Equality. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Please tell your friends about it, like, subscribe, and hopefully there'll be more coming soon. Bye.